We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 2. We're beginning a brand new series this morning. Um, you see on the screens in front of you, for the next several months, we are going to be journeying together through the life of Moses. I have been excited for the last several months about jumping into this series and studying this incredible Bible character. More miracles are attributed to Moses and during the time of Moses than any other person in the Bible except for Jesus Christ. He has made a greater impact on culture, on society, and on history than any other individual to walk the earth except for Jesus Christ. And so over the next several months, we are going to explore together the impact that God made through this servant. And so we're going to jump right into that today. December 2005, Tracinda Fox threw her newborn baby out of a third-story window of her apartment building. It's something that's unimaginable, but in Tracinda's case, there was a reason for it. You see, her entire apartment building had caught fire. The fire had started on the first floor and had risen to the second floor, and the fire eventually found itself not only on the third floor, but engulfing Tracinda's apartment. And so she hoped and prayed that someone was going to come and put the fire out. But as she looked, the fire kept growing and growing till eventually all she could do was open an apartment window and stick her head and her baby's head out of the window just to try to gasp at some fresh air. She waited as long as she could and realizing that there was no hope to survive inside of this apartment, she looked down and there were about 30 people that were gathered down below and she looked down and she saw those that were gathered and she shouted out, somebody please catch my son. And she took her baby and she threw him out of the third floor of her apartment. Thank God, Felix Vasquez worked for the housing authority and he was standing on the sidewalk below her building. Strangely enough, Felix played catcher in high school. He stood right under, used his arms, and made an absolutely perfect catch. He began to examine the baby. Tracinda was eventually rescued and brought out of the building, both of them with only minor injuries, both of them incredibly, by the providence of God, God made it out of the flames. What I want to tell you today is that the saving of a baby that you're about to read in Exodus chapter 2 is no less spectacular than what I just told you. Before I can tell you about the saving of that baby, we all got to get caught up a little bit. If you'll remember, all the way back in Genesis, there was a man by the name of Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, and God called him, and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Even though you're almost 100, I want you to know that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, and God did bless but God also predicted three chapters later that that nation would be enslaved and they would be enslaved for four centuries. Well, what we see is that that did happen, but not before Abraham and Sarah gave birth to a young man by the name of Isaac, who in turn gave birth to a son named Jacob. And you'll remember from the Genesis record that Jacob had 12 sons. And you'll remember that 11 of them couldn't stand the other. 
you'll remember the story of Joseph and the multicolored coat and how they took him and they were going to kill him, but they thought instead of killing them, they could at least make a dollar out of him. So they pulled him up out of the well, and they sold him to a caravan that would eventually take him into Egyptian slavery. But because of the providence of God was all over his life, he was rescued out of that. Through the ability to interpret dreams, he rose up out of that pit and out of that cistern and eventually became the prime minister, second in charge of all of Egypt. Now, what's so important about that is that a prophecy came true, a dream that Joseph interpreted, that there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of lean. It was during that seven years of lean that the people of Israel were starving to death, and some of those people in Israel were his brothers. And they found themselves before Joseph, and they began to beg for food. Joseph, recognizing who they were, not only forgave them and told them in Exodus chapter 50, verse 20, that what you meant for evil, God is you meant for good and for the saving of many lives. But he invited them all to come to Egypt. And a family of about 70 people took up residence in Egypt. Fast forward. That family of 70 is multiplied into a group of over 2 million Jews. And that's how we find ourselves in Egypt. But an event takes place that's recorded in chapter 1 of Exodus that's very important to our story. Because in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that a new king or a new pharaoh had taken charge in Egypt. And he, it, the Bible says he did not know about Joseph. Because he didn't know about Joseph or know the promises that had been made to Joseph and his family, he looked around and he saw that there were two million people that not only would make a great labor force, but also, if they rose up, could take over control of Egypt. So he enslaved them. So where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 2 is a bleak and horrid time, an awful time in the lives of these people. But we see that it wasn't just horrid, that he made one of the most awful decrees, a decree that's on par with Herod or even on par with Hitler. Because he told the Hebrew midwives, whenever you deliver a baby, if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. I want you to disperse of it, throw it in the Nile River. But we had a group of Hebrew midwives that refused the edict of the king, that refused Pharaoh, and refused to do that. But we also had a family, a man by the name of Amram. We don't find that out until chapter 6 that that's his name. And a mama by the name of Jochebed who refused to follow the king's edict and disobeyed. And what we read from of that is one of the most epic stories that's ever been recorded in all of history. So let's begin that story together by standing and reading together Exodus chapter 2. I begin in verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Lord, teach us today that you are always at work bringing about your purpose for your glory 
in every situation and in every circumstance. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And you'll see that our prayer this morning is the big idea that you see on the screen, that our God is always at work bringing about His purpose for His glory in every situation and in every circumstance. Now, this baby was born to a dirt-poor slave family, born into a little thatch hut, but he was born into a family that loved him. He had a daddy named Amram and a mama named Jochebed. He had an older brother named Aaron, and he had an older sister named Miriam. And we're told that when he was born, his mother does something that in the very beginning, though incredibly brave, is not all of that surprising. Because in verse 2, we're told that Jochebed looked on little Moses, and what did she say? She said she couldn't possibly kill him because he was what? A fine child. Let me give you the translation of that. Mama looked and said, that's the most beautiful baby I've ever seen in my whole life. She looked at that little baby and said, there's no way that I could kill this baby. I've never seen a baby more beautiful in all of my days. Now, friends, I want to tell you that one of the privileges of being a pastor, we just dedicated two babies in the past, <laughs> the past service, getting to go to the hospital, getting to see new mamas and new daddies with their babies. It's one of the most joyous times that you will ever see. There may be a not more exciting time than all of the world than when you meet your child for the first time and you look down into their little eyes and they clutch your fingers with their hands. And I have yet to meet a mama that didn't think that their baby was the most beautiful baby that they have ever seen in their entire lives. But I want to tell you something else, church. Some of you are dead wrong. There is such thing as an ugly baby. <laughs> I've witnessed them, and people will put you on the spot. Not just pastors, they put you on the spot because they'll say things like this. Isn't this just the most beautiful baby you have ever seen in your life? And I'll say, he sure is something. <laughs> but in this case... Jochebed looked at little Moses and she said, no, not this baby. And for three months, she did what I can't even imagine. She hid his screams and his cries, probably tried to muffle them the best she could until the cries got loud enough because his little lungs developed to the point that everybody in their whole little village and every hut could hear him. So the Bible tells us that at that point, she knew she had to do something. And so not only did she have faith, but she acted on that faith. And the Bible tells us, you see where it says that she went and built a little wicker basket and she thatched it with tar. It's interesting where it says wicker basket, that there's only one place in the Old Testament where the word for basket is ever used. The word there in the Hebrew is actually the word teba. And the only place you will ever see it is that when God told Noah to build a teba, an ark, it was an ark or a teba that Noah built so that he could board it and avoid the flood and the rains that were coming. It is a small teba that Jochebed built so that, the, so that the waters of the Nile would not rush over her baby. But then she does something else that's fascinating. She gets his older sister, which evidently is a very bright and enterprising young lady. And she says, Miriam, I need you to do me a favor. Don't let you lift that basket out of your sight. Do you understand me? Don't you lift that basket out of your sight. Well, this seems to me to be a sort of a strange command. 
because this woman had to have an incredible amount of faith that this baby wasn't going to die there, wasn't going to be eaten by a crocodile, that the basket wasn't going to tip over and the baby was not going to drown. Because why in the world would you tell your older child to go watch if you believed that that was going to happen? No, she didn't know how it was going to happen, but she believed that somehow, some way, her beautiful baby boy was going to be saved. And so Miriam went and watched at a distance and watched as that little ark, as that little basket floated among the reeds of the Nile. And by the providence and beautiful sovereignty of God, at just the right time, at just the right moment, the princess of Egypt found herself right there in the Nile reeds. And she bent down and she got that little basket and she saw little Moses. And there he was and he was crying his head off. And the Bible says that she took pity on him. Maybe she thought he was a good looking baby too. We don't know. But she not only takes the baby, but at that moment, we've got his enterprising sister that sweeps in and in an act of brilliance says, hey, let me ask you a question. Would you like me to go get one of the Hebrew mothers to nurse the baby for you? Now remember, there would have been plenty of Hebrew mothers to be able to nurse this child because there had already been a command that they kill all of the male babies. So there were probably hundreds of grieving Hebrew mothers that were in the village at this very moment that could have nursed that baby. But Miriam asked the question because Miriam already knows the woman she's going to. She says, I'm going to go get mama. And so even though the daughter of Pharaoh has no idea, she not only goes and gets Jochebed, Jochebed has given her baby up from the Nile, the, the baby has gotten saved, and now not only is the baby given back to Jochebed, but don't miss the detail, now Jochebed's being paid to nurse her own child. Did you watch that? Incredible. The sovereignty and the providence of God is over it all. He's in everything and He's over everything. So as we read this story, some things jump out to us and there's some things that we cannot miss because they're going to teach us not only about Moses' life, but what we need to learn about living lives of faith. And the first is this. If you're taking notes today, number one, faith, work, and planning go hand in hand. Faith, work, and planning go hand in hand. Now, would we believe that Amram and Jochebed were parents that had faith? Absolutely. If that was a true or false question, I think every one of you in here would get it. But I want you to note something, that in her faith, she did not cease to act. She actually hid the baby. She did everything she could to keep him quiet. She built a little ark. She thatched it. She sent his sister to look after him. She was there and ready when the call came to nurse him. And I want you to know something about faith. We have so many people that when asked about situations and circumstances in their life, they'll simply say something like this. They'll say, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Well, there's nothing wrong with waiting on the Lord, but you could do something while you're waiting. You can pray while you're waiting. You can work while you're waiting. You can plan. And it may be that God changes those plans. But it's never been that faith was an excuse for apathy. Faith has never been an excuse for complacency. Faith has never been an excuse for laziness. No, the people that have the greatest faith are also the people that work the hardest. Amen? We see that jump off the pages here. But number two... God is sovereign over absolutely everything. Probably most of you can quote it by now. When we sang this morning that God is awesome in this place, and when I came down and we said our prayer together in the midst of the music today, I reminded you of something. 
I reminded you that you're not here by accident, that you're not here by chance, that you're not here by fate, that you're not here by luck, that it is by the divine sovereignty and providence of God that you are here in this place at this moment. And what we know is that we don't serve a God of accidents, that we serve a God who always, always, always moves, and He moves on purpose. God upholds, governs, and directs all things in all circumstances, and He always does it for His own glory. This baby was placed in the very spot where other babies had been thrown to die. The Nile had become a place of death. But yet this little ark, this little tebah, this little basket had been taken and placed in the very place of death. And yet it became the place of rescue and it became the place of life. Can you think of anywhere else where someone's child was taken and placed in a place of death? so that one day it may be heralded as the place of life. Friends, I want you to know that God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. And they took Him to the place of death. You know it as Mount Calvary. And He was sacrificed on a cruel cross there on Golgotha's hill. And it was in that moment and at that time that the place of death, after Jesus cried out, it is finished. On Resurrection Sunday, the places of death friends, can become the places of life. He is sovereign over absolutely everything, and He's working in the midst of your life, even if you don't see Him right now. I want you to know, and you need to hear from the Word of God, that the story is not over, that God is not finished with you. Now, what we know from this story as we study the rest of Exodus is that the actual Exodus, the word Exodus meaning to exit, the exit from Egypt towards the promised land would not take place until 80 years after this event. 80 years. What does that tell us? That Amram and Jochebed were most likely long gone when that took place, before it even started. If you truly live a life of faith, it may be that all of God's plans and all of God's purposes, that you don't come to see all of them come together in full fruition. But it doesn't mean that we don't act in faith in the meantime. Because God is not through. Whether or not we see how He ends the book, whether or not we just are part of an incredible chapter or not, we know that God is moving. And that needs to inform you, not just in the very long term, but in your life right now. You may be walking through a dark chapter. You may be in a dark season. There may be things that you're unable to explain. The circumstances may seem overwhelming, but what you need to know today is that it's not the end of the book and that the sovereign creator of the universe, the provident God, the one that rescued Moses from the bulrushes there on the banks of the Nile is the same God who is provident and his watch care and protection are over your life. You need to know that it's not just the story of Moses. I'd like to, to tell you just a few examples, and we could spend hours on these. But if you'd permit me just to give you a few of my favorite examples. In 1525, the Bishop of London ordered that every one of William Tyndall's New Testament translations be bought and burned because he did not want the people to get their hands on Tyndall's New Testament. What the Bishop of London didn't know is that he paid so much for the Bibles that after he destroyed them, that Tyndall was able to buy new printing presses and release an even better copy of the New Testament that he had before. And that because the Bishop of London bought all the Bibles, he was able to finance a project which more people than he could have ever imagined ended up with Tyndall New Testaments in their hands. 
Let me give you an example that you'll remember from Scripture. You'll remember in the book of Daniel that Daniel, Daniel was accused. And because of his accusations, they took Daniel and they threw him into what church? The lion's den. But because of the provident and sovereign hand of our God that closed the mouths of lions during that fearful night, what ended up happening to the accusers of Daniel? They were taken and thrown into the same pit and eaten by the same lions that were supposed to eat Daniel. You may remember from the book of Esther, one of my favorite stories, that there was an evil man by the name of Haman, and he had a huge gallows built, and the gallows was for the sole purpose of he wanted to see Mordecai swing on the gallows. But in one of the most beautiful examples of poetic justice in all of the Bible, we find that it wouldn't be Mordecai that swung from the gallows, but Haman himself who would be hung from those same gallows. I want you to remember a little bit about church history and know how God has moved and worked in ways just like this. A man, a philosopher by the name of Voltaire made it one of his life's missions to exterminate Christianity. I want you to know that right now, the Geneva Bible Society bought Voltaire's home and one of the greatest distributors of Bibles in Europe comes out of what once was Voltaire's home and now acts as a place where the Bible is being given out all over the world. I want you to know about what take, took place in Nazi Germany. There was a radio station that broadcast Nazi propaganda as far as the ear could hear. But right now, in that very same place, coming out of what was that very same radio station, what we now know is that the Trans World Bible Society has bought that and the gospel is preached across the airways and is heard all over Europe Oh, out of the same place that Hitler placed his propaganda. Friends, what I want you to know is that God can take evil and turn it on its head. That He can do more with little than you ever imagined. And it may be that through our small faith and the little vision that we have, we're unable to see that a limitless God is doing more than we can ask, think, or imagine because He is God and we are not. And friends, I need faith like Amram and Jochebed to say, God, here's the best I have, but you can take and do more with it than I could ever think about. Amen. Number three, man, man, I need to hear this. Number three may have been for me. It may not be for the rest of you, but it's for me. God can and does move during dark times. How many of you know we're in a spiritually dark time right now? We are living out Romans 1. People are being given over to their sin. We are in an age, that the Bible says, where we call right, wrong, and wrong, right. It, I do not have to take a long time in this sermon to prove to you that this is what the Bible calls a wicked and perverse generation. But I've got to tell you, shame on the church for one thing. The church has acted like at times that God was somehow limited because of the perversity of a Romans 1 culture. And I want you to know that God has moved in times just like you just read. It wasn't just that the Israelites were in captivity, but they had been in this captivity for so long that they had bought into the culture of Egypt. And yet, even in the midst of that, during dark times, God is moving and working. Who would have thought? 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, when the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans, when there was not a faithful few that seemed to be left in all of the world, that God would decide, Galatians 4.4, that that was the fullness of time in which He would bring His Son. I want you to know if you look back on church history and read about the Reformation, maybe the darkest times that have ever existed in the life of Christendom, and it was out of that that He called a little monk out of Wittenberg, Germany, to take and nail 95 theses on the door so 
that the Protestant Reformation would begin. Friends, shame on you for believing that in a dark hour and in a Romans 1 culture that the God of victory can't rise up and do something bigger than we can imagine. Friends, I want to tell you, sometimes it is in the darkest of times that God moves and God moves mightily. Which is exactly what leads us to number four. God always, always preserves a remnant. When we walked through the story of Elijah and we looked at his life, do you remember us talking about that he preserved 7,000 prophets in the midst of one of the darkest times in Israel's history? I want you to see that even in the midst of this dark time, he preserved at least, and we know it was more than this, but at least one family. Amram and Jochebed and Miriam and Aaron, and he preserved them for such a time as this, is what Esther said. He always, always, always preserves a remnant. And one of the reasons I'm excited about God being able to move in dark times is because I know people like a lot of you. And one of the things that I know is that even though I live in a Romans 1 culture, I live with people like a lot of you where God has preserved you as a remnant. And because there is a remnant, there is a hope. And when there is a hope, what that means is that revival can be right around the corner. He always, always preserves a remnant. Number five. Number five. Entrust your children to God. I don't know what it looked like in that village that day standing in that little hut trying to muffle his cries for just five or ten more minutes because you know she just wanted to hold that baby just a little while longer. She probably had so much tar on that little basket because she had gone over and over it trying to push the days back. She had checked it over and over and over again. They had probably been over the plan until they were blue in the face. But there came that moment where she realized, I can't keep him any longer, and she had to place that baby in that basket. She had to take her own hands, and she had to, had to gently push that little teba, that little ark, and allow it to float out into the Nile River. Now, friends, my hope for you is that none of you would have to give your babies up as toddlers. But what I do know is that mine are growing up way too fast, amen? I know that the day is coming when, whether it's at the end of the driveway or whether it's at a college campus or whether it is that I watch their taillights and they go towards another city far, far away, that they're really not my kids anyway. That God has given to them to us, but He's given them to us on loan. And we have a trust. And friends, none of us like to give up anything, and none of us really like change. But at the end of the day, what we need to realize is that we aren't the only people that have raised children during dark times. And our hope and our prayer is that we have loved them enough and taught them well enough and prayed over them well enough that whenever that time comes, that we release them into the world with the full understanding that the same God who gave them life and breath, the same God who is in providential control control over them, takes care of their lives. And oh God, how it humbles me to know that he does such a better job with them than I could ever think about. And trust your children to the Lord. And then finally, I want you to see from this passage and I want you to see from all of Moses' life, your choices, your choices matter. 
Your choices absolutely matter. We had a group of Hebrew midwives who said, I guess you can do whatever you want to, but I'm not about to try to kill these babies. We had a family, a man and a woman, Amram and Jochebed, who made a choice, a choice that could have not only cost them Moses' life, but it could have cost them their own lives as well. Yes, God is sovereign, and yes, God is provident, but that doesn't mean that you aren't called to act wisely in a foolish world. That doesn't mean that you aren't called for the decisions that God has placed on your plate to do the best you can to the glory of God with the wisdom of the gospel to choose and choose well. Your choices matter. Teenagers, students, your choices matter. Adults, your choices, they matter. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded that everything we do has an echo in eternity. Everything that we do matters. So we want to look at our lives and both with certainly the big decisions that many of you are referencing in your minds right now, but even with the smaller decisions that we make in life, the day-to-day things, that our choices matter and choices have consequences. So let me implore of you, church. Let me beg of you, church. Choose well. Choose well. Even today, you are called to make a choice. One of the things about when we preach Scripture, if it is preached well, you will not be able to leave here without making a choice. A choice of obedience or a choice of disobedience. When you come before the Lord, and one of the reasons that the way we prepare as we sang about, that we are preparing for the Lord's return, we prepare for the Lord's return by being in the Word of God, and being in the Word of God causes us, calls us to obey the Word of God and brings us to the place where we recognize that choices matter. Now, there's one choice that's more important than every other choice that anybody will ever face, and here's that choice. Joshua said in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods of the Amorites or the God beyond the river. But for me and my house, we, we will serve the Lord. Friends, you are called to make a choice. And you are either sided with King Jesus, who is the captain of our salvation, or you have chosen the broad road that leads to destruction. You can't ride the middle of the fence. You can't have a, a foot in both camps. And friends, I want to tell you, only a fool wouldn't choose Jesus. Your choices matter. Your choice matters in this life, but your choice will echo in all of eternity. And what you do with Jesus today may affect you forever and ever and ever. So I'm imploring you and begging you to give your life to Christ, to repent of your sin, to believe that He died on Calvary's cross and that He rose again on that third day and let Him have control of your life. But some of you, as you look behind me and you look at this list, some of you realize that you need to make some different choices. Maybe some of you looked at the very first thing and you thought, you know, I've kind of used it as a cop-out, that I've just, you know, I've got faith. But you know God's calling you to do something, do it. Number two, some of you spend your whole lives in fret and worry, anxious all the time, 
And you need to be reminded if he can defeat sin and death and deliver a baby from the Nile, that he can take care of whatever it is that you've stayed so stressed out about. Number three, and this is for the pessimist in the room. Would you quit letting Satan convince you that he can't move during dark times? Whether it's a dark time of an era or a dark time in your life or a dark time in your family, God can and will and does move. I'm not going to be a part of a church that doesn't believe that better things are on the horizon. You know why? Because I know they are. I'm positive of that. That's why we're getting ready. Number four, God always preserves a remnant. You're either part of that remnant or you're not. Thank God a lot of you have chosen to be a part of the remnant. Number five, we could have spent our entire time here together. Have we really entrusted our children to the Lord? Children, have you entrusted your lives to the Lord? Are we willing to realize that they are the Lord's and that He desires wonderful for them, that He desires what He has planned for them? All of those things simply mean, number six, that your choices matter. So it's time to make a choice. I choose Jesus. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.